0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and my special guest with me today is Christopher Owens from the Virginia Shakespeare Festival and from the College of William & Mary. Christopher, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine,
1: Kyle. Nice to be uh, with you and your
0: podcast. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun today. We have a, an interesting play to talk about, All's Well That Ends Well, which uh, you did recently. Would you mind uh, just telling the listeners a little bit more about you and your background?
1: Um, well, um, as you alluded to, I'm the artistic director of the Virginia Shakespeare Festival, where I've been for the last 12 years. It's centered on the campus of the College of William & Mary, where it plays during the summer. I'm also chair of the theater department there uh, at the college. Um, I've uh, been a regional th- before my time in academia, which is about 15 years in, in length here. I've had another f- 18 years before that in various regional theaters directing all over the country, um, probably about 190 plays now, of which maybe 30 of which were Shakespeare. So that's kind of my little thing.
0: It's a pretty long resume. Um, Christopher and I had the the pleasure of working together last summer on a production of Julius Caesar. But we actually met two years earlier doing a production of Serious Money at the University of Houston, uh, which was my first year there. Christopher was directing the production, and I was playing the role of Jake. Uh, But today, the play we're looking at is uh, one of Christopher's most recent conquests, uh, a play called All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, And I just wanted to start, uh, this, this is one of Shakespeare's problem comedies, but I wanted to start out by talking about... Just a couple of the characters and and what it was like to to work with these actors on on developing these characters specifically uh, Helena um, to start off what was I mean what's that character like what was it like Well doing her uh, right let
1: now? me preface this by saying that that um, the, the all's well that ends well that that most recently was at the Virginia Shakespeare Festival here I was not the stage director of even though I was the artistic director of so I certainly sure. worked very much on the, the casting here and and we. We went through like three rounds of casting trying to find a Helena that that really worked for us here and and looked at a lot of different possibilities and ages and ethnicities and timings and sensibilities and stuff that going on here. So um, because she carries the show here and you've got to really care about what she cares about, even though you look at her a lot of times and shake your head and say, girl, give up this guy. What do you (laughs) what what is it about him um and then bertram in 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 finding um again the other side of that equation to say what what is it that she sees in him uh, that is admirable enough to go through the tremendous amount of machination that she 's got now i 've directed alls well about six years ago before that in another production here so i 've got both a, a, a recent reminder of the show that we just did and worked on with director Stephen Brees um, and the one that that I did you know not too long ago here, which are the same questions keep you know asking yourself and, and how are you going to deal with? With, uh, with an audience basically needing to root for Helena and Bertram to end up together. Hmm. That, they, that, that that somehow becomes, oh, wouldn't it be great if? Um, and if you can find a way to do that, then an audience will stay with the variety of, of things and, and uh, questionable activities involved <laughs> in all of this pursuit here uh, to hopefully an ending that goes, oh, well, that's what I really was looking for all along. Um, the other great comic foil of the, the play, is, as I think you've alluded to here, is the Parolus character here, which is, a, in some instances, a, could be a, a, you could see him in other Shakespeare plays as the the braggart, as the the liar, as the person who's you know uh, inflating what he does here. Um, and one has to ask yourself here: Well, is he one of Bertram's circle? Is he just yet another kind of? you know, for want of a better term, frat boy sort of guy going along with the rest of the crowd here, trying to fit in a crowd that he isn't quite good enough to fit into uh, here. We don't sense that he's of a tremendously lower class here. Um, Otherwise, Bertram wouldn't hang out with him here because class isn't a huge issue. In fact, it's the major divide between Helena and and Bertram here. He just doesn't think that she's of his class Uh, Here And so that he shouldn't be with her. And so in doing the play, again, and just working on the most recent production and trying to find a a world uh, culturally, historically here, you've got to find some place to set this play here where class matters and that we understand why someone would be so cognizant of their class being different between themselves and this woman who adores them.
0: So, is it important for us to, to root for Parolis as it is for us to root for Helena and Bertram getting together?
1: We we've got to like him somehow. We we can't be just sort of saying we need to laugh at his machinations of trying to keep his image hmm. uh, here. Um, and, and so, and you need to find an actor. Talk about casting. We we also went through a lot of a lot of callbacks in. in In New York and and a couple in DC, and in the Parolas character recently, to to find someone who, I I, I hate to say it, is just plain funny,
0: you
1: know, (laughs) and has got that that quick comic sensibility and can turn on a dime here. Now, I will say that the last time that I did uh, All's Well, I thought, and I'm not unique in my scholarly interpretation of this thing here, I think Parolas can be, and I played him the time before this thing here, as another Falstaff. Mm, That that he can indeed be Falstaff to Prince Hal, and that's what the Bertram Parolis thing can be, and literally making him the size that we think of Falstaff here, and and a little bit older, rather than this sort of contemporary, yet slightly uh, outside of the cool guy ring uh, that we played him the most recent time here, this last summer, Mm -hmm. when he was of the same age as Bertram.
0: So, as far as the ending then, Oswald is considered a problem play, or one of Shakespeare's problem plays, I guess, because the ending is not necessarily, I mean, it's, it seems happy, but it's not necessarily leading to what we believe would be happiness in the future. How do you make the audience, A, buy the ending, and B, how, how do you make the ending seem like the ending of a comedy? Does that make sense?
1: Okay, well, there's a couple. Uh, I'll give you the two examples of how, it, in my most recent experiences with the play, we, we did that. You are absolutely right, and, and I think that that's a, a need for the play to succeed. Um, and and it, generally, it, it's, it's, it's in the comedies because people get married at the end, and it's not in the tragedies because people haven't died at the ends, and that's kind of the basic division. Um, and it's not a history. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, in our most recent production, uh, of it here this last summer here. Um, director Stephen Brees cr- wrote and created a, a prologue to the show here uh, in, in a, with a, this whole huge book um, that the widow character actually from it here became a somewhat of a narrator of it. it came on with here. Um, and so this whole sort of fairy tale, Milieu was established from the very beginning of the show. Here is that this is a story here, and in a um, pantomime aspect of it as well. Here, that one of the first things that we saw was Helena and, and Bertram in in a kiss. Here And so, basically, we did a cyclical thing here where we gave you the end of the play at the very beginning of it in this sort of setup here. Sure. And so this the, this romantic couple that, that we've seen in this this fairy tale that that, that you're about to be presented here, um, you knew. And so, I guess in some ways that may spoil the suspense, but it also creates a, a, a surrounding in the play here that, that goes that here. This is this fanciful story here, and that... It's going to have a happy ending here, and that it's going to be fun. Um, well, so that was, one, that was one way that I think it got to it.
0: And, and what's uh, interesting about that is it, it solves the, the two biggest problems we've, we've talked about so far, right? It, it finds, like, by putting them together and making them happy in this prologue at the beginning, you instantly put the audience in a position where they want to root for these two characters to be in this situation of happiness, I, I would feel. And then, uh, that,
1: that was our hope.
0: Yeah. And, then, and I think it succeeded, actually, and as,
1: I, as I look at the run of the show.
0: And you also solve the fact that the ending doesn't seem entirely happy by showing the world in which it is happy straight from the beginning. So the audience isn't really left to wonder what happens afterwards. They are, they are led to believe that this ending did lead to this happy marriage and this happy kiss. Oh. Right, and this, then, then that
1: it continued on afterwards. And so, what we're seeing here is that they they have sort of resolved their problems here. Um, the other way um, that I attempted in a, a, another production of it that I directed uh, here to work with this problem here um, is that Bertram is such an ass for so much of this play here, and even in the last scene when he's starts by lying, you know, and denying the various things that he's done. Oh, no, I never did this. I threw it out the window and she, you know, et cetera. And the whole camp had her and th- this and that. And here and where we go. I mean, why? Again, the question of Helena, why are you going after this guy here? Um, I, in a fairly bold choice that I, I think also worked in a different way here, um, the, the end of the play is after Bertram has come back from war. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, w- in general, war in this play here is terribly romanticized. Uh, I mean, we never actually get to see battles here. We sure. just get to see people put medals on and you know wave swords in the air and, and trick you know guys who are going out to try to find this drum that was lost and, and stuff that's going on. Um, but we never actually get to see anybody. It's not like Caesar when you know a bunch of you guys get bloody and dirty and die uh, yeah. at all. So. Um, But what I I did with it here is instead looking at a war that even though I didn't have a battle scene as a pantomime or or whatever to do it here, I had people come back from that war indeed dirty and hurt and broken.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, And so Bertram um, and some other soldiers that were with him from this thing here, uh, taking the lines a little bit like him he's got a scar on his sinister cheek you know that it, it says at one point as uh, Lavatch is talking about uh, Bertram's appearance as he come back this was a guy that was, I as he came back here was not only physically injured here I, he in my production here he's he was limping as a lot of scars here but also suffering mentally from being able to truly shell-shocked, to use the kind of World War I term uh, of it here, Uh, and so that this guy's, he was broken here, and he sort of wasn't himself, and so there was a sympathy that was sort of engendered by it here, and his even trying to remember the circumstances of what did I do with this ring here? You you saw a guy whose Mm. memory was truly faulty, probably, given what he had been through here, and so our, our impulse for him and for Helena to take him in and, in essence, nurture him back to physical and mental health became the <sighs> moment of the ending of the show here instead. Now, those are two really different choices in how sure. to deal with that problem. But you're right, it's a problem you got to figure out with.
0: Well, and what I really like about the, the second choice uh, is that it seems... It, like it leaves room for the audience to perceive a giant character, either growth or change of some sort in Burton because of this um, this stressful uh, period of his life in in the war. Um, and we you know, we still as a society, like every time we think of war, we we automatically think of stuff like um, PTSD or or breaking oh. down and being built up or or growing. Like, as a as a man in battle or, or whatever, there's a lot of, uh, again, I guess, kind of romantic ideas about war, and putting Bertram in this situation where he is coming back from something that is so... such a hardship, um, does leave room for the audience to paint their own sort of character growth on, which does make the ending a lot more plausible, which I find pretty cool. Um...
1: Yeah. I, as I said, they, they both sort of work for different reasons. And and as it, it, going back to the class thing here, you, I, you still have to find, as I said, a, a culture and a period of time here where, where class is still a, a big issue here. And, and as we get more and more modern here, and particularly more and more modern in our Western world, um, it's tough to buy that those class distinctions are, are going to be so seminal to the development thing. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the, the most last summer's production here at Virginia Shakespeare Festival was in a, a cavalier time period here. So it was sort of the three musketeers comes to all as well. Um And my one that I talked about earlier on with that was uh, Napoleonic Wars. Um, so we were early 19th century here, but still in a time period where, where class distinctions were clear and important here, but at a time when war is starting to become less romantic
0: here. Sure. As far as any other challenges of of directing the play, you being a part of it twice in the past six years, have you noticed any other particular um, difficult things about uh, bringing this play to life and making it work?
1: Um, well, the, the, I think that the, the Parolus character is the other hinge yeah. pin
0: of, of this
1: here, um, that, that finding how you're going to uh, approach that guy that the Yannis can sort of laugh at and laugh with, um, which are, of course, two different things here. And and, and how are you going to approach it here? And like <clears throat> almost all of us, Stephen Brees in our most recent productions, and for myself as well here, a- edit our Shakespeare's um, somewhat for time, somewhat for content, somewhat sure. for the most obscure language i mean a lot of that latin and love's labor's lost is not funny to anybody (laughs) anymore (laughs) and uh uh and some of all's well is pretty tough to get the the more verbal witty humor here unless you've got some pretty obvious physical elements attached to it as well uh, and or actors that that can play that particularly well so that's um uh, that's something. So besides the the, the wanting to, to – it's so hard to like Bertram, and we're trying to find a way to do it here. Uh, uh, the problem sort of is um, it, Helena and this basic question of why. Why do you keep pursuing this guy here? Mm-hmm. Uh, solutions that I have uh, uh, toyed with or seen other directors deal with here. Um, some have been um, – a Bertram who is just drop dead gorgeous. Okay. Right. <laughs> that pure sort of physical uh, factor of this guy here would um, lead you to believe, well, okay, I can see that she sees that in him. Sure. Uh, here. Um, and I think you want a little bit of that no matter what you, you choose. It's here. Or uh, some directors have looked at Helena in a um, uh, fatal attraction sense here mm-hmm. that, okay. that she too is a bit psychotic In if we look at Glenn Close's portrayal in, in that film uh, here and that, that, that we buy what she's doing in regard to her own uh, somewhat warped sensibility here. Uh, I made an, a choice, which I think was a fairly interesting one in that production six years ago here. Uh, is that I put Helena out as a real outsider, mm-hmm. um, in an outsider, not just in the, the class sense of what her father was in the household of the Countess and Bertram at this point in time here, um, but I cast her as Asian um, in an otherwise uh, all Caucasian society, or at least mostly so at, at that point in the play here. Um, and so that she had that ethnic. Thing uh, outside here, and, and was one particularly when I'm looking at this in an early 19th century period. At that time, that she had a, a, a an almost n- overly humble uh, sensibility about her own worth and how she dealt with things here. Hmm. Uh, I, I went so far as to in the the one of the other questions of the play sometimes is my God, what is how, how does Helena cure the king? How can she do something that all the doctors of Western Europe, as the play says here, haven't been able to do? And then he says, I'm going to die because nobody else is going to do that. And she says, no, try my one thing here. Um, And in that production here, um, uh, the medicine aspects, including some very long acupuncture needles that I pulled out here, for it here was clearly not Western medicine that had been tried here, but Eastern sure. medicine that did something here. Huh. In our very fairy tale version that we just did here, um, the, the bag that Helena brought in at the moment when she said, when she sort of was convincing the king to, to try her medicine here, she brought out this. And props did a wonderful job on this. This this large vial of glowing, pulsating. Liquid that had LEDs built into it that just glowed magically with this heartbeat-like pulse in it here, and so if there was ever a piece of magical object, sure, this yeah. is what she had, um, and so therefore solved that problem in, in a sort of magic way. But you got to have a fairy tale world around the rest of it for you to buy. Yeah,
0: that. yeah. In order to introduce the element of magic into the world, there has to already be some sort of element of magic that the audience will lend themselves to believe. Anyway, so that's another problem in the play. Yeah. Very, very cool. Um, Great. Well, now that we've talked about uh, All's Well That Ends Well a little bit, uh, I wanted to invite you to play uh, a trivia game um, that uh, we just started doing on the podcast last week. Uh, And this version is called Disguise, I See Thou Art a Wickedness. Um and the the game involves me saying the name of a Shakespearean character in disguise. Um to give an example you 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 kinda get what I mean, but to give an example would give away some of the questions because okay. there are very limited um Shakespeare characters. But basically I will say the fake name of the character and you will give me that character's real name. Um and I'm going to put three minutes on the clock. There are thirteen in total. And we'll see how many you can get right. <laughs> I do. I, I'm wondering how
1: I, I what my memory is on this uh, uh, here, but we'll see.
0: All right. So let's start out with an easy one Cesario. Uh, Viola in Twelfth Night. Right. Um, the next one we have is Ganymede.
1: Uh, Rosalind.
0: There we go. Uh, two for as two. Like. Um, so we have Poor Tom.
1: Uh, Edgar is the is the actual character from Lear.
0: That's right. Um, we have Licio or Litio.
1: Oh.
0: we're digging into the
1: more obscure ones now. Okay. I, I, I don't think uh, it's not one of the Taming of the Shrew ones. It there's is. A couple yes. Is it? Okay. But I can't remember. Is it Lucent, who, Lucentio that, that does that or not? Sorry, I can't remember which of the guys takes that
0: one on. So it's Hortensio. Hortensio, okay. Um, All right, the play, not the character. The next one is a little tricky uh, Lucentio.
1: Well, the, um, it, I'm not sure where that goes in who. Okay,
0: I'm. It, pass. Yeah, Lucentio is. Uh, Tranio dresses up as Lucentio in oh, tra- of the of course, play. also in true. Um, how about Sebastian, or Sebastian, depending.
1: Um, that uh oh um. Well, but but Sebastian's his real name, but he says that you're talking about Twelfth Night. Yes. No, I'm
0: actually talking about a different play.
1: Oh, okay. Then yeah. I I then I, I don't know. It's the Rodrigo Sebastian thing in Twelfth Night, but not this uh, okay.
0: Two Gentlemen of Verona. Really? Yes.
1: Okay.
0: Julia's fake name when she goes out in disguise. Okay. It's only mentioned like once. Um, Okay. How about Master Brook? Got me. Uh, Master Ford. Again, more obscure. Sir Topaz.
1: Well, that's Festi's uh, thing
0: here. Yes. Um, So this is from a play that we've already mentioned, but how about Caius?
1: Caius in Two Gents?
0: No, in King Lear no. actually.
1: Oh, I don't, I I don't remember who takes that on. That was be... was what Kent pretends to be.
0: That's right. Uh, okay, all right. So we have Aliena or Aliena or Aliena, depending on your production. Um.
1: It, is that the, the other As You Like It one?
0: That's right. Yes. Okay. For
1: Celia takes on. That's yeah.
0: correct. Um, Fidel. I haven't a clue. <laughs> Apparently it's Imogen. Um, how about Balthazar?
1: Does someone just I mean, the Balthazar that I know the most is R&J, but that's actually the character's name.
0: Right. There, there are four Balthazars throughout Shakespeare, um, wow. and this one is from The Merchant of Venice. Now Balthasar is an actual character, which is why this is a trick yeah. question. Um but there's uh, does, 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 um, is that the one that uh, Shylock's servant
1: takes up? Uh, is when he's running away, trying to pretend to be?
0: Okay. No, this is apparently Portia dresses up as Balthasar in the play, even oh, though Balthasar is an calls actual character. Oh, herself.
1: Boy, we don't hear to say that very often. Okay,
0: um, and or the last tell- one we have is Cambio.
1: I should remember this, but I don't. It's hear. also Taming that, True, yeah. yeah, and that's the the, the other guy's name. It as the tutor.
0: That's right. That's Lucentio. Cool. Yeah. So, and that brings us to well, about four minutes. We went over a little bit, but this is this is a lot of fun playing this game. Um, And that was a tough one, too. Like most of those characters, I had to seriously like delve into the the smaller plays of Shakespeare in order to find characters that actually disguise themselves. Speaking of disguise, though, the other problem in in
1: Oswell, um, as it is with Measure for Measure, is it's one of the bed trick plays. Mm. Um, And so when as in the deception that's involved in, in this play here is an audience buying or even understanding that it took place that this whole switch out, that Helen is going to come, Diana's going to pretend here and that it's going to be, and that somebody in bed can't tell the difference between these two women while having sex with them. Um, right. There's a challenge in, in, in all's well here. Um, I do think that, that verbally it isn't enough, and in both our most recent production here at VSF and in the other one that I did here, I did a whole pantomime scene of the bed trick. Um, and added that into the show here, so that the, the audience understood that this switch out actually had taken place.
0: Ah, because I okay. think
1: I think you can miss it otherwise if you don't somehow see it. Sure. Um, you also, I think, have to cast a, a Helena and a Diana who are very very similar in stature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, in order for an audience to have. Any sense of buying that that could have happened?
0: Well, yeah, and that's another one of those things that Shakespeare is putting a situation into the play that's pretty tough for a modern audience to believe. You look at uh, a, a man and, and seeing, thinking about the act of him actually having sex with somebody else and and not realizing that it's it's a different person is is just uh-huh. a tough thing, a tough pill for the audience to swallow. Yeah, this-
1: yeah. In our most recent production, actually, as Stephen staged it here, <clears throat> he had uh, in, in in a pantomime here of, of coming into a, a a bed here in a fairly dark situation. He actually had Diana put a blindfold on Bertram, hmm. um, and then the two women switched out after that point in time here. So that made that maybe even a little more.
0: Sure, and the blindfold is something that the audience can totally go for, and then the fact that they're similar in stature enough makes the audience go, oh, okay, well, I can see how that might happen.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yes. <laughs>
0: um, as far as listener questions, we only have one today, and it's kind of like a smart-alecky comment, but I thought it might be a good thing to delve into. Um, it, like, I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit, but... Um, that's the system of a down in on Twitter, which is actually my brother asks, does it end well? Um,
1: well, that's as we've been talking about, your, your challenge is to make it end well. You're, you're literally you're obligated by the title, I think, nice. almost uh, to create some sort of hope um, that occurs. Um, I, I don't think you can make it, you know, tremendously. Rosy. I mean, at least you get a little bit of funny lines at the end here when uh, Lefou is starting to, to cry and ask Pirlous even for a dirty handkerchief at that <laughs> point in time to squelch his tears. Um, um, you get a, a nice, funny tagline at, at the end of it all here. But um, but but we've we've got to find a, a, a hope and a, a reason for Helena and Bertram to think that they have a future together, other than that this is doomed.
0: Sure, so what we're saying is that, I mean, it, inherently, there is no, like, happy, rosy ending. It's a, it's a play that you have to work to make follow the title, or else the play's yeah. not going to make sense.
1: Well, if you look at the, one of the other um, plays that is generally lumped in this area of problem plays here, and that's Measure for Measure, which has a, an equally ambiguous ending mm-hmm. to it as well here, when You know, the dude turns and asks this about to be nun if she'll become his wife uh, at the end of it, and and Shakespeare doesn't give you a a yes or a no in a response, so every director is faced with a choice at that point in time here about what's that response and how should we feel about it. I, I and it seems to me that that Shakespeare at that point is actually going for a cliffhanger as contrasted to Allswell when it seems like he is going for some sort of resolution.
0: Cool. yeah, it's it's interesting to think about a play in which Shakespeare doesn't really give something a completion because I mean a lot of his more famous plays, we think about coming to like a definitive a, a definitive close like Macbeth and Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet whereas you you're saying All's well and measure for measure sort of leave something for the the director and the actors and everybody involved in the production to make a choice upon am i correct yeah i i, I don't and i
1: think that that you have to i think that the the productions that are least successful are are those that don't make a choice that, that don't, that just sort of leave it up to what I think an audience is going to feel as an unsatisfactory end to their evening, um, unless you've found some closure.
0: Right. Well, great. Um, that's pretty much all the time we have for today. I, I wanted to, to give you an opportunity, Christopher, um, to, to let everybody know what uh, is coming up in the near future for you or in the distant future, if you so choose, and how the listeners can follow you in your future work? Well, I, I, it's n- nothing, not about me personally so much
1: here, but, but if anyone would like to take a, a delightful summer trip down to Virginia, from <laughs> wherever they are, who they're hearing this here, um, uh, our next season will open, I think, June 29th with a production of Romeo and Juliet, um, and I'm not quite sure exactly what's after that. Uh, here as I'm, I'm planning things there, but um, it is every summer in Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, on the campus of the College of William and & Mary, and uh, has been going on for what will this next year be, its 38th season. Wow. Uh, so I, I would hope that uh, I will plug in instead my institution instead of myself here. Right. Uh, the only thing I would say out there is if anyone know my in, in plays that are on my list that that I'm looking to do here. Uh, and for those of you who are interested in Shakespeare, if you've not had a chance to see or ever read one of his contemporaries in Spain, Lope de Vega's The Dog in the Manger, um, I am just in love with that play at the moment here. And I'm looking for whatever can be the next place that I might be able to mount that, which I think is a stellar piece of work, particularly the most recent translation of it by David Johnston. Uh, that the Royal Shakespeare Company did some years ago here. It's out in a variety of print versions here. And if you ever get a chance to go see that show, my production or otherwise (laughs) here, do it. It's really a fascinating play. And another female character that I think is one of the most interesting women written uh, of this century.
0: Well, there you have it, everybody. That's Christopher Owens of Virginia Shakespeare Festival and of the College of William and Mary. For me, I'm Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. And if you have any questions or are interested in a private coaching, you can contact me at nyshakesguy at gmail.com or you can follow me on various forms of social media on Twitter at nyshakesguy, Facebook nyshakesguy, Instagram nyshakesguy, and YouTube, Kyle Downing, parentheses, nyshakesguy. And remember, for more free tips, hints, and material suggestions from all 37 of Shakespeare's plays, you can visit my website www.kyledowning.com slash Shakespeare. I'm Kyle Downing for Christopher Owens. Thank you for listening and keep up the hard work on your bard work.